Greetings and welcome to Bombadil's Porch. And I am Caleb Klontz, together with Nate Larmore and Chris Martin. We are three Christian fathers enjoying the view of God's Word and God's world. And uh, today we are looking forward to uh, looking at God's Word and uh, have a devotional thought. Uh, Hopefully, uh, watch your devotional thoughts or your thoughts on my devotional thought from... from, from Psalms 139, um, but also in reference to John 9, uh, just some things I've been thinking through as I do sermon prep time for this Sunday. Uh, then uh, the theological concept of givenness, and then finally uh, a book review, uh, classic Krakauer essays on wilderness and risk. Um, Nate's going to bring that to us. So, um, yeah, I guess just uh, starting out with uh, yeah, Psalm 139. Psalm 139. What you're Not thinking. the whole psalm, but uh, so so in context. First of all, in context of um, the the man born blind, John nine, right? We've been we've been studying this at church uh, at Valley Bible Church. So for our listeners that, that aren't aren't listening, uh, just kind of to fill you in, uh, we're heading into the last portion of that, uh, the third Sunday um, of that text in John nine. And uh, just thinking of this, this man born blind, right? Born blind, Jesus comes to him, um, uh, spits uh, in the ground, mud in his eyes, tells him to go wash in the pool. He goes and washes. He can see. Um, so this this unique story. Then he's um, basically interrogated by by the the religious rulers of the time of the day, um, and and uh, and and eventually at, toward the end thrown out of the synagogue, right? And we see this whole progression of faith. Um, and then in the end, we see that he ends up a worshiper, right? He he worships Jesus and so believes in Jesus and ends up a worshiper. But I guess I don't want to get too much into that that for this sun, this Sunday, even though this will be airing after this Sunday, which is a good thing. Yeah, so you can go to SpokaneBBC.org and look up last week's sermon and get the long version from Caleb. There we go. But one of the things I was just thinking about is Psalm 139, uh, 13 through 17, which which I'll read. And just thinking about those, especially for those who who have uh, have some sort of a disability or some sort of, um, yeah, they're born with some sort of, a, you know, unique uniqueness to them. Uh, we might think a deficiency or something like that. Um, and and how, how do we... Um, apply this? How do we um, help people who, who are maybe in that position to see see what we're going to see in Psalm 139? And, and I, I don't know. I just It's something I've been wrestling with. I wanted to get your guys' take on it. So, all right. So I'm going to read Psalm 139 verses um, 13 through 17. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! And we could go on, um, but at the beginning of the story in uh, in John nine, um, Jesus, uh, the disciples come up to this man born blind and said, "You know who who sinned? Uh, you know him or his his parents that would have caused him to be this way." And Jesus corrects all that bad theology. <laughs> but anyway, um, but he says, 
He says um, that that uh, it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And, and that's an easy answer, right? We are the way we are for God's glory. And, and I know that that's true. And, and that's where we, we, we obviously are land always, right, is is that we are all created for, for God's glory. Um, that's that's our existence is for that. Uh, we were, as I think uh, David, Paul David Tripp says, uh, we were all born into a world that is entirely about another or something similar to that. He says often in some of his, uh, his things. And so, but, but how, how do we wrestle with that? I guess with that truth um, in, in light of the reality of, of right? not all of, not everyone's going to be healed by Jesus, right? Some of us are, are living with, with, uh, with the real in this life. In, yeah. In this life. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for making that clarification. So. What do you guys think? Well, do do either of you have disabled children? We've got our son Josiah has was diagnosed with Tourette syndrome. Mm. Now he's doing very well. I mean, he's learned to control most of it. Most people don't notice it. Uh, he's taking himself off meds, and and part of that is, I believe, I hope he's kind of growing out of it. That does sometimes happen, um, but uh, but that's something he's had to wrestle with, right? And we've had to wrestle with with him. Is is you know this is this is who you are. This is who God created you to be, but doesn't mean he doesn't have the question why, right? Sure. I ask not to pry, but you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes I, f- I, I don't want to sing songs to a weary heart. And I, and I think there have been times when I'm struggling with something. I'm, I have a burden that, that, that God has allowed into my life. And I think there are well-meaning folks that aren't going through that, that um, it, for all the right motives have said things that were really discouraging. <laughs> Or not mm. said things that could have been encouraging, and so I say that not not. I mean, God is God, no matter what we're going through. But I, I my my heart goes out to to parents and to individuals that that have a a disability that's a, a prolonged thing, something that may not. We pray for healing, but may not be healed. And and I was I'm just curious, and I, I don't know if you've. You can speak to this, Caleb, but, you know, in light of Psalm 139, where we are fear, individually, fearfully and wonderfully made, I wonder if, you know, from from your experience, if that's something that, that you have a unique insight into or your family does, you know, and, and, and perhaps not. I, I don't know. Be, you know, again, I think of we have families here at our church that have disabled children and um, and working in the kids ministries, you know, we get to minister to them and I'm always you know, I'm actually always delighted in some ways by the unique perspectives mm-hmm. and personalities that these kids bring into the classroom. Um, some people might say that, uh, oh, it could be disruptive, but I, I often find it's it, it it's usually not. If you listen to what they say, it's fascinating. Um, with that said, for those families, I know there are real burdens and there are real challenges that they will face. And I, I you know, I in light of John 9, and this great passage that uh, our pastors have been leading us through uh, in light of Psalm 139 and what David has shared with us about his his pouring out his heart to God and, and praise about the, the intricacies and beauty in which uh, each of us was made in the womb. Um, I, you know, it's something I, I'm curious if you guys can speak to, uh, how do you reconcile that for families that have, have have some real challenges in their homes. One of the tensions that we need to hold carefully is the ability to distinguish between what you might call 
ability and and value and sometimes we equate those in ways that aren't helpful mm. uh so, you know the, a gross example of that is is exam you know like from the story of john 9 uh, if you have a disability mm-hmm. the assumption is you're less valuable mm-hmm. of a person and even an att- attribution <clears throat> that you would not be disabled if you weren't some kind of a spiritual miscreant Sure. That this is all judgment because you're a bad person. Or your parents did or something wrong. Or your parents wrong. were yeah. bad people. Mm-hmm. So that kind of a notion is straight from the pit. Mm-hmm. And, and we have to reject it out of hand. Uh, but even today, there's almost a reverse of that, which is trying to explain disability as, as not disability. Mm. That it's this thing that we need to see as as a good thing the disability itself and it's okay for christians to say i was fearfully and wonderfully made exactly as god intended me to be but the fact that i am a creature born with legs that don't work is because i was born into a world where the curse is still into effect mm. And it's not bad to look forward to the day when I will be renewed in Christ and have legs that work, right? That, that, that'll be a good thing and not have that then be a reflection on, on my value and my ability to be used by God for his glory in this fallen world. And it's amazing. There's, you know, I think of Johnny Erickson Tata. She's one of the first people that comes to my mind when I think of people with disabilities. Mm, The incredible way in which God has used her for his glory. There was another young lady in college. She had actually been uh, on the South Korean Olympic team as a gymnast. Mm. I believe it was two months before her opportunity to participate in the Olympic Games. Her spotter missed a catch when she missed a bar broke her neck quadriplegic, right? And uh, her name was So Young. And uh, I got to be one of uh, her drivers. Mm. She had this special vehicle for her wheelchair and stuff. And so I would drive her all around campus and we would chat. Hmm. Uh, what what joy just radiated from from this lady who had figured out how to use, she had just a couple muscles higher up in her neck that worked enough to wiggle her arms and she would get a friend to wedge pencils, eraser side down into her hands that she couldn't use. And she would type her papers by using two muscles in her neck to move her hands wow. just enough to type wow. on her laptop keyboard. Wow. Right. And that made everything she did excruciatingly tedious. Hmm. And yet she always was just full of joy, loved Christ, was so excited to go back to her home country and minister Christ to other people that had been uh, in in others' accidents and had also been injured or disabled in different ways. And it was such a testimony to the fact that I cannot wait for that lady one day to have a body that is fully restored Hmm. in its glorified state. You know, she's going to be doing gymnastics for Jesus (laughs) someday, and that'll be a sight to behold but what a powerful, powerful opportunity for God to be seen through her human weakness. And so whenever we're talking about human disability, for us as Christians to keep disability and keep value as, as separate categories is really important. In some cases, God uses those 
those disabilities to, to bring even more glory to himself. I, I th- are you guys familiar with, um, there's a gentleman named Nick Vujicic. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I pronounced his yeah, name correctly. Yeah, see him over in Slovenia. He oh, came through. He's, uh, he's an Australian, as I understand, an evangelist and um, was born with no arms or legs. Right. His, actually, of all places where I became familiar with him, I think Oprah did a show on him and I saw a clip of that. I mean, talk about an amazing, not only has he overcome physically his challenges, but he uses the, his entire story for God's glory. Uh, he immediately came to mind, but there are others too. I, you know, I met, we've known people over the years that suffer with chronic pain. I can't imagine that by the way. I mean, so there's these disabilities come in all kinds of forms, mm. chronic pain, crippling pain. Uh, but this individual be, who at times can barely leave bed is use that time to focus on prayer for others has become a prayer warrior in some ways it's um, in many ways it's humbling to me how uh, my christian brothers and sisters that face these challenges have used these to glorify god amen amen yeah no i i appreciate uh, i appreciate that and that's I have a very good uh distinction chris to to remember to keep those things uh or uh, separate as far as uh, ability and value, um, very important. And I, and I think one of the keys, uh, I mean, the the hard thing is, you know, this is what we have to do with, with our son is, is to remind him, um, you know, to what we had to do. Uh, he's, he's doing a lot better, but it's just, you know, to remind him um, of the truth of God's word that, you know, that, that God had made him uh, fearfully and wonderfully as, as he was for his glory. And obviously uh, as a non-believer, that doesn't do anything for you, right? Going, yeah, God made you this way is not is not going to help. That um, feels cruel. That feels cruel, right? But but as as a believer, um, you know, and obviously, we, you know, not that our kids were believers at young ages, but but you know, trying to instill those truths in them, um, but but remember, reminding them that that you live for for God's glory and that God is is good, and that eventually, you know, in the future, that there will be a time where where those things will be he healed, taken away from, from all of us. We will all not have to suffer through uh, the effects of the curse. And so, um, but yeah, as a believer, it's far easier to be able to look at those things and go, okay, God, you know, we want you to be glorified in me, and you've done this for, for my good and your glory. Um, anyway. I wonder as... as uh, members of the church here and certainly members of the kingdom of God, how, how we can be particularly aware of, of other families and individuals in our, in our church, in our community that, that we can support, we can minister to, we can encourage, um, and not just with words, you know, in tangible ways. I think, I, I don't know about you guys, but for me, I, I, my hesitation is often it's, it's not even laziness, although that comes into play. I don't want someone to feel awkward. Mm-hmm. I don't want them to feel badly in some way. But I, I, I think, um, you know, if we proceed with humility and grace and compassion, um, but try to be a meaningful blessing in people's lives. I mean, that's that's what Jesus did, and uh, maybe we can help each other do that. I would actually just like to put a call out and ask directly for some feedback from some of our listeners, mm-hmm. because until you're in the midst of this is life. Um, it's sometimes hard for outsiders to really know what would actually be helpful. And there's different kinds of disability. There's physical disabilities. There's cognitive disabilities, and they they have different impacts. They come with different needs. 
and it would be really, uh, really appreciate if some of you might even uh, go leave us a voicemail or send us an email at bombadillsporch.com and say, you know, these are practical ways in which a church or in which friends, in which a community can help to integrate us into the life of, of these, of these circles of people uh, in, in ways that, that are a blessing and just be really specific and practical. If you'd be willing to, to call in and let us know um, or email and let us know, we'd really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great idea. Well, Chris, why don't you, uh, why don't we transition to, uh, to this uh, concept of, of oneness and, uh, is it givenness. oneness? Oh, givenness. givenness. Oneness. Givenness. Right, I'm not even looking at my notes. Chris, did you make <laughs> up this word? Givenness. No. Is that a I pastoral didn't. privilege to make up words? Not unless you have a PhD. <laughs> I wanted you to talk about oneness. If you have a PhD, you get to make up words, and then they're just they, now they exist. It's a thing. Now, since Caleb did the intro, can he change your your <laughs> segment? I thought I could on pick the, on, <laughs> on a dime <laughs> like that. He doesn't want given givenness. He wants I'm oneness. I'm just gonna change the definition in the dictionary. Then <laughs> there we go. There we go. <laughs> Take that. Uh, my bad. My bad. It's yes. now spelled G I V E, and what however is, you want to pronounce it. What does givenness mean? Yeah. yeah, it's not a traditional formal theological term or category, though it's, I think, uh, becoming increasingly used and popular. But I think it's a really important one specifically in our generation. And it has to do with the way in which we receive the authority of God, a way in which we receive how he has established reality. Hmm. God has revealed himself primarily in two ways, right? He's revealed himself in his word and in his world. That's one of the reasons why we've even structured our podcast the way we do, where we look uh, in in some of our podcasts primarily at God's world and look in our podcast primarily at uh, God's word. Uh, But he's established in reality and who he is and how we're to think about the world around us in those ways. We as Christians tend to focus, and, and rightly so, on the revelation of God in his word. And that's in the word in scripture, in scripturated, the Bible. That's also in the living word incarnated in Jesus Christ. Uh, that That's where we see the most specific revelation of God. But an area that sometimes we maybe neglect in our love of the written word and of, of the living word is the revealed world of God and the way in which God gives to us certain things that we ought to receive with joy in the act of creation itself. And so if you think of uh, creation as sort of the, maybe a focal point of learning to see what God has given to us, creation and how creation played out was not just willy-nilly, like, uh, you know, I could do it any old way I want to, but uh, let's just do it this way. Right, that there are certain aspects of the way creation takes place that are meant to give to us patterns and norms that should govern society. Uh, we see that uh, what is the purpose of humanity? Well, he put man into the garden to take care of it and said, I want you to have dominion over this garden and take care of this garden. That That basic giving of that mandate, giving man to the garden, if you will, that establishes a relationship between man and the rest of creation. Uh, that has massive implications for how we view the environment, for how we view natural resources, for how we view the way that economies ought to work. 
understanding the way that God is the, the relationship God established between man and, and the garden that he put him in is, is fundamental to that. And then the rest of scripture, as we read, it kind of exposits that it explains, it fills in details and principles and wisdom and, and how we ought to, to do that. But just the, the nature of creation, God making a garden and then putting the man in it and saying, take care of it. That's pretty important. Uh, the notion of of who we are as beings created in his image. That's a givenness. God says, I'm going to make a man in my image. Boom. Male and female, he created them. That is now something that we have received, and we don't have the right to reject that. I can't say, no, actually, I'm just an advanced mammal, right? And if we as a culture decide to confer personhood based off of some arbitrary status of cognitive of self-awareness or whatever, then we'll give them value. No, we've been given the image of God by the nature of being human beings. And we have to receive that and celebrate that. And in humanity, we've also seen God establishes there is male and there is female as biological sexes, but also male and female as roles that are attached to those biological sexes. Gender is binary in God's creation, and that has to be received from him. This is who you are. It's, a, it's the givenness of creation, not even just in the Garden of Eden, but for each one of us. We emerge into this world with a givenness to our identity and who we are. Even things that you might think are just you know poetic or whatever, like the, the time God spent creating. The fact that he spent six days working and one day resting, he then repeatedly tells us throughout the rest of scripture, I did that because that's the basic pattern I want you to live your lives with. Work six days, rest for a day. Don't work seven days. Don't work one day, right? Mm -hmm. This is what a healthy human pattern of living looks like. Six days of labor. That was five days and then two off though, isn't that? Yeah, but you see, you got to have one day for all the chores that accumulate. <laughs> oh, so did he work eight hours for, the, for those working? You see, now that you can be flexible on. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's we're not, not told, right? So, yeah, just, you know, it was sometime in between morning and evening, right? <laughs> all right. All uh, right. There we go. So, but that that's meant to be a pattern that we live by. Uh, and so you can just go on and on, right? There, these are the, this is the givenness of creation. And we're in a culture that hates givenness. Because we, we are in a culture that idolizes autonomy. I get to pick what I am, what I do, what's important, and on and on. And so to say, well, actually, the way you should live and the way you should relate to creation and the way you should relate to your creator and who you are and what you're for and all of that is already determined and baked in, that's a real frustrating thought for our culture. I like how you set that up, Chris, that... What God has given us is not simply our possessions, our skills, our relationships. It's the attributes of our personality, gender, our identity, all of these things. Even your hopes, dreams, fears, and they've all been handed to us. And what I find interesting, too, is, is we haven't been given... Well, you could choose to reject it, but then we would be in disobedience. God has handed them to us, and now he expects us to live a certain way with the resources he's given to us. Yeah. And what's interesting is that as a category, even though our culture rebels against it, it can't escape for, from it because what is the most common explanation for 
a a style of living that is in direct contradiction to the way God established us. I was born that way. Yeah. This is this is the identity I was given, mm-hmm. not by a creator God, but by um nature. Well, to use Dawkins' yeah. language, yeah. by selfish genes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this this theme of dominion is is interesting to me because in a way it connects to the world before sin. It's a that that mandate that that God gave to to Adam. Uh, not not only was it be fruitful, multiply, but he 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 gave him this planet. And and actually, uh, I don't want to skip ahead and in, in, in the book review segment, this is something that that jumped out at me. Uh, this theme of of taking care not only of our families and the resources that God gave us individually, uh, but taking care of this world that he's given to us. It sure seems like that's something that um, a lot of believers kind of shy away from, maybe because that whole topic has been hijacked by others. Yeah, environmentalism usually is associated with a kind of modern-day idolatry, mm-hmm. and we correctly have an allergic reaction to that. But I think in particular, I'm going to point the finger at our corner of the evangelical world, uh, sort of your evangelical, historically dispensational corner of the world. And because we we look at scripture and we say, hmm, it's all going to burn someday. Well, then might as well be today. <laughs> you know, if it'll make some money and do whatever, let's burn it today. Uh, and like you're saying, that is also a rejection of the givenness of what our relationship to the created world is meant to be. We cannot idolize it or we are in sin, but we can also be very bad stewards. That's a bad testimony. I mean, there's there's criticism applied in it. I don't even think it's very fair, but there is criticism thrown at us from, from environmentalists. You guys don't care about the planet at all. And yet you think God created it? Huh. You know, there's there's a rejection there, uh, yeah. but it's a bad testimony to to not care for what God's given us in in all its forms. It is indeed. Yep. <laughs> so, sorry, Kim. I, I saw your head nod, and I thought there's going to be a yeah, he was warming up a I, fountain uh, of wisdom <laughs> trying to pass it off. Um, <laughs> yep. Uh, yep. Well. I don't know if there's much more that needs to be said after that summary of, uh, of the concept there. And yeah, I, I, it is something that is worth not only, I think, just understanding as a category for ourselves, but this is an important category to teach to our children mm. and to teach it in such a way that they recognize that the givenness of God is good, right? That if God is sort of a capricious jerk who just likes watching people have to march to the beat of his own drum then, yeah, it's frustrating to be forced to dress up as the characters in his play and put on the pageant he wants us to put on. But if he's a good God, and if who he is is good and is reflected in his creation of us as beings in his image, then we can have all confidence that in our submission to his authority, both as it's revealed in God's word and as it's revealed in God's world, that is the path of joy mm. and where there's that conflict mm-hmm. like how can how can you say god's given me this when my desires are for that then we resolve that conflict by saying i'm broken <laughs> that's yeah. that's the conclusion the conclusion isn't well then god must want me to go in 180 degrees out of phase of what he's revealed the conclusion is my heart wants me to go 180 degrees out of phase with what is revealed, and my heart is deceitful, and it wants to ruin me. 
And instead, if I will say, I'm willing to do what God has said I should do, even when I don't feel like it, that's the path of joy. And, and that is something to teach our children when they're very young. Impulse control, <laughs> desire control. I mean, these are some of the most important things yeah. to teach to our children. And if they can get that young, you know, what heartache they can avoid. Because, uh, yeah, we're, you guys all have young people and they know their friends, their peer sets, just the wreck and the ruin right now in our young young people as they desperately are trying to figure out how they're supposed to discover themselves how they're supposed to satisfy all these desires roiling around in their heart because this is who I am therefore this is how I'm supposed to live this is for it, it it's unlivable and so depression and and anxiety and all those things are off the charts well and and the world strives for these things too they just try to do it without god and what a what an exercise in futility. And in a sense, we shouldn't be angry at it. We ought to we ought to pity them, have compassion for them, and and do our best to introduce them to the God who made them uh, through our lives and through our words. Mm-hmm. What comes to mind, you know, you hear in, I don't know, for as long as I've been alive, every movie, there's, you know, follow your heart. and <laughs> Don't do it. Yeah. yeah. It's a trap. No, stay away from your heart. Well, it's follow a trap. your heart until it, until you following your heart interrupts my personal interests. And now we have a, a real issue. <laughs> so you see the world striving for this. And yet the, 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 the philosophy that the world projects does not hold up. It feels good. In fact, I think that if you were to try to summarize modern culture, it's sloganeering at its worst. It's, <laughs> it's, it's bumper stickerism. And, uh, and what's your theology? Oh, it's on my bumper sticker. Uh, and, and which, which basically means it feels good to say it feels good to think it. And then the moment that that thought passes, I'm back to selfish, empty, lonely living. Um, you know, we, rather than be angry at, at, at the lost for acting that way, we ought to pray for them, have compassion for them. I'm preaching it myself right now. It's very easy to get frustrated with people that are in opposition to you, but these aren't our enemies. They're our mission field. And model it. Mm, and yeah. that is, I think, so important for us as Christians is people need to see in our lives what the gospel applied looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that God talked about with the Gentiles was that their embrace of the gospel was going to provoke Israel to jealousy. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul was, was really fixed on that. That was, I think, one of his motivations in his work because— He's the uber Jew, right? The super nerdy Jew expert. And God's like, you're going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. <laughs> what? Like, you think he was a little disappointed when he heard that? <laughs> I think at some point he was. And you look at Romans and how much he wrestles with, why Why is God doing this stuff to the Gentile? What about Israel? You know, And mm-hmm. I think for him, he it dawned on him that you know, Israel's hardness of heart opens up the door for the gospel to reach the Gentiles. But then by the Gentiles' acceptance of the gospel, he hasn't forgotten Israel. That's going to provoke Israel back to jealousy mm. uh, one day in God's timing. And for us as well, there, there ought to be such not fake, saccharine, pretend Christian happiness. I'm a Christian. That means everything is great for me. You should be like me. I mean, we all can tell a, a sales pitch. Yeah, We know when yeah. uh, they've put a little Vaseline on the lens. Mm-hmm. Um but if there's a genuine joy in the midst of tough stuff, uh, a, a genuine happiness in Christ, that that should be an extremely compelling, uh, a compelling witness that accompanies the actual proclamation of the gospel that needs to also be present. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, earlier. I was distracted because I was trying to find this article about Ooh. this um, the CEO of a business uh, who. 
who actually tried to work seven days a week for a while. He he thought if he had nice. the right schedule, it would work. And and he thought, why why wouldn't it work? I, you know, he would he would work less each day, and he would work seven days. But you know, he figured it all out. He'd still do the same number of hours of work a week. He just would divide it up over seven days. It would give him an opportunity to have, you know, a more set schedule. You'd think the rhythms would be better for sleeping, all these kinds of things, you know. And I actually found it didn't it didn't work. For some reason, you know, our, our body needs to have that uh, a day. And then he ended up going back. But it is an interesting article, uh, but I, I couldn't find it. So oh, uh, <laughs> you have to just take care of yes. the word for it. Take my word for it. Or I'm sure a little bit of Googling, you can find it. But uh, I used it, uh, yeah. One, well, anyway. by tonight, you can have it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> Well, There'll yeah, be there you go. Citation needed, but yeah, exactly. I'm looking forward to this, Kev. Can you send the link when you find it? Because that is interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, maybe I can throw it on our Facebook uh, once uh, once we find it or something. Uh, book review, Nate. Uh, classic Krakauer. Yeah, yeah. I went out on a limb, guys. I I am reviewing a a book that's not a Christian what? book. Uh, it's not a yes. Your book isn't saved. Yeah. <laughs> Mm. And I'm 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 carefully I'm keeping it at a safe distance here, but I um, see that. <laughs> got my torch. Um, I'm holding it up for those of you listening. Please look closely. Uh, classic crack hour. It's got a picture on the it front. Like a here. classic mustache look is what that. that looks like. This is him up on Everest. Um, for those of you, uh, well, I, I'll start with this. Classic crack hour essays on wilderness and risk. One of the things I like about this book is it's a collection of essays, which means you don't have to read the full hundred, full 175 pages to get the story. Uh, you get it chapter by chapter, all these interesting little tidbits. So give you a, a little bit of a background here. Most folks who are familiar with John Krakauer were introduced to him in the late 90s or early 2000s through movies that were based on his nonfiction books. His books are mostly about mountain and wilderness adventures. Uh, the into the Wild is one of those. I have has, no idea why that would appeal to you. Oh, not at yeah. all, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> if it paid better, I'd be gone. No, I, uh, Into the Wild is one, a great story. Uh, warning label there that if you read that, you might just go on a, a long journey and uh, and disappear for a while. Now, they're Into Thin Air. They're probably his most famous books. Into the Wild was made into a movie by Sean Penn, actually. It tells the true story of a young fella that was disillusioned with the conformity and materialism of modern life and decided he was going to hike across North America and into the Alaskan wilderness back in the 90s. Uh, the story of Krakauer's most famous book, Into Thin Air, began in 1996. That's when Krakauer, who was a journalist, was hired by Outside Magazine. They asked him to go to Mount Everest and write about how commercialized the uh, the area had become. He was initially sent to only review the situation at Everest Base Camp, but his adventurous spirit— Do you know what altitude Everest Base Camp is at? It's at 18,000. Um, you know, <laughs> not that high. You know, Base Camp, yeah, 18,000 feet. Uh, so he went up there, at, but the, the adventurous adventurer in him got the best of him, and he ended up joining in with two groups of climbers that headed to the summit. So they only have— 12,000 more feet to go to get to the summit. The two groups summited Everest successfully, but in what has now been called the 1996 Mount Everest disaster, a severe storm trapped many climbers near the top. Krakauer was able to make it down, but eight climbers, including a couple of legendary guides uh, for you mountaineering fiends out there, Rob Hall and Scott Fisher, you'll probably remember, lost their lives. So eight people died on the mountain. Uh, Krakauer published a critically acclaimed novel, into thin air about those deadly events, and he published that in '97. That book was adapted 
into a film as well. Um, in the, I thought this was a great way. Alistair Scott in his New York Times book review of Into Thin Air says that, quote, Mr. Krakauer's greatest achievement is his evocation of the deadly storm, his ability to recreate its effects with a lucid and terrifying intimacy, end quote. And I think that really captures Krakauer is a fantastic writer. He immediately brings you into a story that you may not have thought you were going to care about. And, and he also takes you not only into the story, but he starts to connect you with the many threads of real life that weave through the characters and places. He was born in Corvallis, Oregon. Where are you from in Oregon, Chris? I'm from Washington. Oh, I, I thought you were from Oregon. Okay. No, mm. but I actually had a very good friend of mine who now is in a band um, who moved to Corvallis oh, when yeah. I was young. Oh. Tense? Is that yeah. yeah. Is, that, is this band, can I find them on iTunes? I'm not sure if they're Tense. on iTunes or not. Facebook. If you can look up Tents, right, Brian cool. Hall, shout out, buddy. All right. I've been to Corvallis a bit. I got relatives in Lebanon. Big shout out to Lebanon, but I don't think we have any listeners there. So maybe in the years ahead, if they're listening back. Um, he was first introduced to mountain climbing at eight years old. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, he graduated in 1976 with a degree in environmental studies from Hampshire College in Massachusetts. He has lived uh, throughout the country, but has spent most of his time in Colorado, Alaska, and the Pacific Northwest. Uh, with that in mind, boy, what a preamble. But with that in mind, I want to focus mm -hmm. on this book, Classic Krakauer Essays on Wilderness and Risk. So, uh, it spans an amazing range of subjects, global locations. It's 10 what I would call gripping accounts that show us why he is considered what might be a standard bearer for modern journalism. Uh, and, and not the journalism you see in the news anymore, because that's not journalism. <laughs> but folks, they really will go invest themselves in understanding a situation, a location, and then make you aware of what's going on there. Uh, from a horrifying avalanche on Mount Everest, these essays cover that, to an act, the active volcano Mount Rainier that is poised to obliterate a chunk of Seattle at some point. And Rainier Peak is, uh, I just looked it up, it's a little over 14,000 feet. Yes. So it is several thousand feet short of base camp base for camp. Everest. <laughs> uh, it was just a simple little assignment to go to base camp and talk about yeah. commercialization. Uh, he covers in the book uh, Wilderness Teen Therapy Program run by parent sadists. <laughs> 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 That's my kind of camp. I got to find out what's going on there. That sounds like, what was that movie uh, and book? Holes. Holes. Yes. Holes. Holes. <laughs> Uh, good movie, by the way. Um, he goes to uh, one of the longest, deepest cave systems. Uh, he actually went on a trip down into the cave systems with NASA scientists. They were looking at that, you know, trying to understand Mars uh, and Mars exploration better. Just a variety of fascinating and great true stories that that I think really connect to meaningful issues like character, character building uh ethics in business, environmental concerns, uh, impacts on communities. The essays were originally published in magazines like The New Yorker. That's, that's the second time I've referenced The New Yorker on yeah. this show. Uh, you are upper crusty, aren't I you? I might wow. becoming an elitist. I don't look it and certainly don't sound like it, but I'm I don't know. feeling got, it. He has a pretty elite voice. <laughs> yes, the voice is elitist. Okay, all right. I'll have to, I'll have to hone and tone that. Uh, the Smithsonian, in terms of publications... The book, the stories are well researched. I would say vividly written and delivered with masterful detail, and you really get an appreciation for him as a storyteller. So you guys are probably wondering, okay, Nate, this is great. What does this have to do with anything as Christian dads, dudes, um, um, families? 
I guess this brought me to something you touched on earlier, Chris. Biblically speaking, uh, the environment, the planet. Uh, I would want, I'm kind of wondering what you guys think. Biblically speaking, where does our thirst for adventure come from? And where does that hunger to discover new territory come from? Or, or maybe we don't all have it, and only some of us do. Thoughts? Talk amongst yourselves. Okay, as the uh, globe-trotting missionary. He even walks to work. Yeah, so that's wonder the kind. Thirst. Oh, yeah, that's the thirst. Yeah, he walks to work. And I think <laughs> at this point with the weather, we gotta, you got to assume I don't walk to work anymore. I summit <laughs> Mount Sullivan oh, every day. Yes. That one time you walked to work, how was No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Uh, my, my wife is far more adventurous than I am. She's the one that will go out and camp, you know, where there's no... You know, no facilities, and you got to carry your own stuff out. And so I don't know. I mean, I'm adventurous in that I like to discover things. I mean, I love traveling around uh, Europe, Eastern Europe. I love traveling around other cultures and exploring those. Not so much terrain. I think that's the difference. So maybe I've oh, there's different kinds of exploration. I guess sure. I guess so. So I'm I'm a different mm. kind of explorer. Are adventurer. you a culinary explorer? I do like to yes to discover yes. culinary things too. Yeah, I love very that. few things I won't try to eat at least once. <laughs> so what is it? I mean, whether you're exploring mountains, wilderness, or menus uh, in far flung places, what is it that? Uh, that you, that you think is in the human spirit, the, this desire for adventure? I think it's, it's a different desire for different people. You know, I think some people seek adventure because they're running away from something, mm-hmm. right? Then there's that sense that where I'm at is terrible. I have to go somewhere else and find whatever's going to make me happy. I think for other people, uh, there's that um, the desire to conquer something which can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing, but I want to go find something that hasn't been done and do it to sort of check it off the list of human achievement. Uh, for some people, I think it's um, it's a self-serving thing. It's a way of dealing with personal insecurities. I think it's one of the reasons why you see all these CEOs with pictures of them at the top of mountains all over their office. And it's like, see, I am really good at what I do. I'm an amazing <laughs> person. I climbed this rock. Uh, and so I think for some people it really is that that just need to need to achieve at a level that few people can. But I do I do really believe that we were created, especially as as men. I think we can I can speak more to to the heart of man than than to the heart of women. But as, as man that is uniquely created and uniquely called by God to go to the chaos, to go to the frontier. Uh, in a way that is unique, there is that drive that mm-hmm. there's a place that has not been stewarded before. I mean, that would be a righteous way to view it. I mean, there could be a place, there's a place I haven't claimed. <laughs> you know, right. I haven't <laughs> found out how to make money with yet. I gotta go get it. Uh, that would be not as healthy. But that idea of you know, there there's a place that we have not yet extended our dominion to, and so I want to be the one that pushes that border out to do that. Uh, and that that's not a bad thing. It's a risky thing, mm-hmm. like you, the, this guy talks about, but it's not a bad thing. Yeah, I think uh, speaking of the risk, I mean, there is a part, and maybe each of us uh, as guys and, and our kids, our boys and girls and, and our wives are drawn in different ways. But there just does, there does some seem to be that because it's there, I want to see what it is. I want to experience what it is. I think for the Christian, uh, for myself, when I'm standing on peaks or, or um, 
hiking or climbing. I, I think one of Nita's and my big adventures, we, we did the Grand Canyon in one day. And that was a great experience that we both got to have together. That's cool. Um, the, the, as a believer, it was just like, it was like 12 hours of, of praise as you're walking through this variety of environments. And, and at times it was hard, but you still felt propelled forward because you're wondering what's around the corner and you're hoping that you're near the end. And, oh my goodness, there's a 5,000 foot wall that we have to walk up now before we're done. But even <laughs> that, the beauty is, is the sun move throughout the day, the canyon changes and the shadows change and the colors change. And, and it was just, just fantastic, you know, intoxicating in a way or backpacking in the Colorado Rockies, um, going to tall peaks there. There's just something that you, I don't know. You feel as if God created this, uh, and now I get to experience it with him. Now I will say the, in the book here, you are dealing with some pretty high-powered elite climber types in different, and not just climbers. There's, there's a chapter on surfing in here, uh, mm. the Mark Food disaster down at Mavericks um, years back. But um, these folks all seem to have similar personalities, driven, mm. um, willing to push, always wanting to push the limits to see how far they can go, and at times pushing that risk margin so thinly that it costs them. It costs them dearly. A lot of times as Christians, we tend to critique those sort of folks. Uh, you know, and we might even say, you know, oh, what a waste. I want to get you guys' thoughts on that. You think that's a fair critique? Um, or are we, is there something to be learned from the risk, taker, risk takers? I mean, that's definitely something to be learned. I mean, I think risk can be right um, in the right context. I think it can also be very wasteful, uh, you know, if it's just for, I guess, pointless gain just to say, I conquered that. I did that. I mean, I think as Christians, we need to be looking at things as, you know, are we taking risks for the kingdom of God? Are we taking risks for his glory? Um, or is it just to get the thrill or to, to be able to have the achievement or to say, I've, I've done that. Um, so I, mean, I think, I think there's, there's a, a balance there, obviously. Um, but, but yeah, I, I guess that would be my my something, answer. Something about pushing ourselves. I mean, Eric Little, not a mountain climber, nope. although in the movie he trained by running through the Scot Scottish mountains there. So mm. we've got to, if it was in the movie, then it probably happened. Uh, but there was a guy who I love the scene uh, and, and we don't have time to go into his whole backstory, but, but uh, grew up on the mission field and, uh, and a fantastically gifted runner, an Olympic uh, class runner. And there's a scene in the film where his sister, whose heart is on the mission field, is really pressing him, saying, why, essentially, why waste your life with this running, always running, always running when God needs us elsewhere? Because she wanted him to go back to the mission field. And I thought there was a, a part of that movie that he just, he said, God made me fast. And when I run, I run for his pleasure. Hmm. And of course, what a stunning story, his life. And, and he didn't just run, went back to the mission field he did. and he died on the mission he field. Indeed. Um, but I kind of, I think of folks like that God has gifted us each in, in individual ways and what, well, to grab from Paul, run the race. I know he's creating a metaphor there. In some cases it's literal uh, to run to the mountains or, or do your best at whatever he's gifted you with. 
I don't know if we've got time for this. We touched on it a little bit earlier, but I wanted to ask you guys, too, what your thoughts were about uh, Krakauer is clearly an environmentalist. And, uh, and he ties the, the health of the environment, whether it's mountains or forests or oceans, he ties it in. You can feel that in his writing, not just in this book, but in all of his books, I think. Uh, what can we as Christians do to, to protect this planet as part of our duty to God? He's given it to us. It's part of this dominion, this givenness that you talked about earlier, Chris. Why do you think the secular world outperforms us in this area? At least I seem to think they do. Well, it depends on what part of the secular world you're looking at, right? Uh, there's the portion that views the world purely with greed, mm-hmm. right? And they're they're pumping toxic sludge into the rivers. And I mean, that that's happening all over the planet. And then there's a portion that worships creation and, you know, it says, hey, if, if this is going to cost human lives, so be it. You know, let's shrink the human population. Let's shut down massive sections of the economy. That's all good if, you know, then the the animals get to kind of come back and reassert themselves around the globe. And that's a form of idolatry. It's worshiping the creation. Uh, as Christians, we need to say, what is it? What would a good steward do? And this is kind of a fun one because that's not 100% spelled out in scripture. Mm-hmm. Like, is it okay to have a coal power plant? Bible isn't going to tell you. Hmm. It's going to say, you have dominion over the coal. Take care of it for God. What, what, does, that, what does that mean to do? Well, we shouldn't use up his resources. Well, he told us to use up his resources. Use this. This is for you. It's for your good. Uh, but don't abuse it. And that's where, as, as people, we need to have the, the character and the principles that are always asking ourselves, is this a wise use of God's world? Is this a wise use of God's world? And so, hey, if I figure out how I can take this natural resource and I can use it in a responsible way and it can be a blessing and it can meet people's needs and it can generate a profit that employs people and all that good stuff, fantastic. Um, but if it's like, hey, you know, this is probably going to make this entire landscape unusable and ugly and it's going to ruin it for generations to come and it's going to use up all the resources so there's nothing left for the next people to come along. Um, but I'm going to make a lot of pro- money in the process. What bad stewardship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So coming to the risk question, coming to the environmental question, for the Christian, I think the background question in all of our minds is, am I doing this as an act of worship? Mm-hmm. Am I climbing this mountain as an act of worship? Uh, am I stewarding this resource as an act of worship? Mm. Nate, have you in all your adventuring used a biffy bag? That, that's a, that's a real Thanks, question. Caleb. That's a, one way to steward do, the environment. Do we? I'm trying to think what this podcast is rated because yes, uh, in fact, on on one of my adventures, they nicknamed me Biff Stick. Uh, oh, okay, <laughs> I, I really went all in, and uh, yes, I am familiar with the Biffy bag. And by the way, there is a. <laughs> Here we go. Leave it to Nate. There is a rating system. Um. And, and I'd be happy to share that with you guys. A guy, a Rocky Mountain guide shared it with me, um, a five-star rating system on, um, on all the various elements that come together. Did you see wildlife? Did you make eye contact with wildlife? Were they also biffing? 
Um, oh, wow. There, you, you, can, you can score pretty high, uh, although no one, as I understand, has ever scored a five-star. Gotcha. I, for you who are I, lost, I, you're blessed. Yes, yeah, so for you risk blessed, takers I, out there looking for an adventure, there I, you go. I have an acre backyard, but no, no, I, I usually go inside. The first oh, five-star. Okay. Well, wasn't, wasn't, wasn't sure. You know, I, Linda went on a trip, and we had to buy some, and so I, I actually reviewed them on Amazon just based on on her uh, on her uh, the comments on her experience. And so what you guys need to do is start trolling Amazon reviews and find yeah <laughs> find Caleb's review. Yeah, it was written a bit tongue in cheek. So if you do find my review, I can't for wait to them, find this. Um, yeah, there was there were there was laughing uh, afterward. But anyway, uh, I just I, I know I shouldn't shouldn't make light. Uh, this is uh, our look at God's God's uh, God's oh, word. God but, created. The body, I, well, I got it. You were talking about caring for the environment, and that's one of the Abs- things that the national parks often want us. You want you to pack, you know, it's you bring it in, point. you pack it out. So, well, well and we, uh, and there are ways of doing this where you don't have to pack out, but you, it's low impact, right? Low, there um, you go. So, uh, if if people are interested in this, leave us a voicemail. I'll be happy to call you. Leave a voicemail for Nate. <laughs> for Nate, yeah, he, he'll answer all of those questions. Happy to help for, out in whatever way I can. For you. Well, that's uh, that's all for this episode of Bombadil's Porch. Thank you for enjoying the view of God's uh, word with us. Um, We hope you'll join us again soon. To subscribe to our podcast, look up Bombadil's Porch on Spotify using your podcast software, podcasting software rather of choice, or visit bombadilsporch.com where you can also leave us a voicemail with comments or questions. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, We always love to hear from our listeners, and you can also reach us at bombadilsporch.com at gmail.com. I'll leave you with this quote from Frederick William Faber. We cannot resist the conviction that this world is for us only the porch of another and more magnificent temple of the Creator's majesty. For myself, Nate, and Chris, we wish you a wonderful day of... Yeah. Living for today in light of uh, in light of eternity, uh, the world that is to come.